We're jumping back into the account of Jesus uh, rejected in his hometown. So this is Luke 4, Luke 4, 16. We left off right in the middle last Sunday, which is not ideal, but we're picking it back up today. Jesus rejected at Nazareth, and here's where we're headed today. Luke 4, 16. We're going to observe and enjoy Jesus today. You know, that really is why we're here. That's why we're here every week. And that really is what worship is all about. We come here because we want to see Jesus in the pages of the scriptures and enjoy. The enjoyment of what we see is the worship that we offer back to God in our hearts. To actually observe This wonderful Jesus, what he says and what he does and why he does it, we're going to see and savor what we see from him today. We're going to try to understand his words. Some of it is difficult to understand, but we're going to see and we're going to savor what he does and the decisions that he makes and what they mean for us, especially if we are skeptics. If you are skeptical about Jesus and and the claims that he makes and the claim that he makes on you, I am so glad that you're here today. This really is for you if you're skeptical. I'm so excited for you to see how he responds to his skeptics. On the flip side, we're also going to observe the crowd who was listening to him on that day. And we're going to notice how they responded to his response to them. And uh, we're going to be able to learn some things from them, too. So that's where we're headed today. First, Jesus' message to his skeptics, and then their response, okay? Now, since we left off in the middle, I'm going to read the whole passage again, starting in verse 16 through verse 30. Um, But we're just going to focus on verses 23 to 30 today, all right? Okay, there's our introduction. Now, in honor of God and his word, let's stand for the reading, shall we? Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We talked last week how that's from Isaiah chapter 61. This is verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Heavenly Father, we gather to see and enjoy Jesus. We need him. We want him. Reveal his beauty to us as we observe him here and delight our hearts with what we see. That's why we're gathered. We pray for those who are not able to be part of this gathering today because they're home um, struggling with some kind of illness or, or something else. Uh, maybe they're helping someone. Maybe they're a caretaker and they need your sustaining strength. We, we lift up to you those who are, are not able to be part of this gathering today. And Father, we remember that even among those who are part of this gathering, there are struggles of every kind. We, we lay our hearts open to you as those who are struggling with all kinds of things, uh, loneliness, marital trouble, depression, isolation, fear, relational struggle, uh, fear and worry about finances. Some of us are struggling with chronic pain. Needs of every kind, Father. Just sins of every kind, battling the flesh. And so we lift ourselves up to you and say that we need you. We know that Jesus is the answer, and we ask for deliverance and for help. And so, Father, we know you can take all these needs and and lift up your Son in our presence. And give us joy in him, even if there's no joy anywhere else. But wonders and pleasures forevermore at your right hand, where Jesus now stands, where he sits on the throne. So help us now, teach us, guide us into faithfulness, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Let's think through Jesus' response to their skepticism. So the first thing we're going to do is just observe how he responds to the skepticism that's dominating the room. And we talked last week about how that note of skepticism comes in at verse 23, because they're really excited about what he's saying, but then they begin to ask themselves the question, can he really be who he says he is? Because after all, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, we know him. 
Could, could he really be the prophet that God has raised up in the likeness of Moses to provide deliverance for our people? Like, it's been 700 years since Isaiah wrote this text, and he's saying that he's the one? <laughs> All of a sudden, it's him? Can he be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel who sets the people free from oppression and captivity? Can this really be the person, this young man from our town, who we've known forever and we know his dad? They're wrestling with his claims. And then in verse 23, Jesus responds. He responds to his skeptics. And his message to them really has two parts. Here's the first part. Notice what he does first. The first thing he does in verse 23 that he acknowledges their desire for proof. That's the first part of his message to his skeptics, is that he acknowledges their desire for proof. Now, proof of his claims, okay? Now, they don't come right out and say, hey, what sign do you show us to substantiate your claims? They don't come right out and and say that. Rather, Jesus jumps in and intercepts their thoughts in in response to what they're thinking but not saying. He knows that they want to see signs from him. He knows that they want to see a repeat performance of what they know he did at Capernaum in that other town. He knows that they want to see signs. Now, it's a matter of debate among commentators as to why they would have wanted to see signs. And there are two main views. Here are the two main views for why those people on that day would have been eager to see signs from Jesus of Nazareth. There are two basic views. Here's the first one. It could be simply that they just want to benefit from his ministry the way that the other town did. So that when they say, physician, heal yourself, what they really mean is, hey, show your hometown people some love too. Like, heal us also. Like, we're your people. So if you did it for them, how much more could we expect you to do for us these wonderful things that you did there? You're one of us. So, you know, physician, Would it hurt you to heal yourself and do some good for your own people? That's possible. That might have been what was on their mind. But they could have had another motivation for wanting to see signs from Jesus. And this is where most commentators land, and I lean this way as well, that what they really wanted was for Jesus to put his money where his mouth was. If you're claiming these things, if you're making these grand claims about yourself, like messiahship, let's see some proof. Like we know you did these things, these signs at Capernaum. Let us see with our own eyes you do these signs. If that's true, if it's really more of this second motivation, the desire to see proof, then the proverb Physician, heal yourself is a kind of test for.
for the physician. It's a test of his competence to heal others. Like, physician, if you're claiming to be a competent healer of other people, well, then substantiate that by healing yourself. Then we'll know that you're competent to heal others. So it's a kind of proof test for the physician. Now, we've got these two views. Why is the second view to be preferred, that this really is a request for proof? Well, think about the context. If we're trying to figure out, this is a good just thing to remember in studying the Bible. Well, which view does the context support? What we've already read. We know that there's skepticism that's present in the room. That's why I favor the view that what the people want to see is proof that he really is who he says he is. So that that skepticism can be Removed. He's not dealing with a room full of people at this point that is fully that are fully confident in his abilities. No, they're skeptical that he really is who he says he is. And so there's this request for proof for these signs that they know that he did at Capernaum. Okay, so what we just want to notice here first is that Jesus acknowledges their desire for proof. He's going to encounter this mindset all the way through his ministry, isn't he? Starts here in in Nazareth. Pharisees are going to ask for signs. You know, even all the way at the end of his earthly ministry, one of his own disciples, Thomas, is going to want proof. And I just want to stop and say to you that if that's the way that you feel about Jesus, if you're very skeptical of his claims... And what you would really like is some proof to back up his claims. You're not the first one to feel that way. And you're not the only one to feel that way. You've got millennia of company. Jesus is very familiar with that mindset. That's pretty much been the universal mindset that people have taken in regard to Jesus of Nazareth. He knows your desire very, very well. That's all we're saying right now. He acknowledges it. Jesus is not ignorant of your desire to see proof. He knows. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows that humans don't want to just rely on his words, that we want to experience more than that and see more than that. So I just want to say, if that's you, if you're in that boat, very skeptical, wanting proof from Jesus, from God, just keep listening, keep watching. Specifically, watch how he's going to respond to the people in the room that feel the same way that we're reading about. That's your privilege this morning is to see, okay, how is Jesus going to respond to this request for proof? How's he going to respond to people who want him to back up his claims? Well, that's what we have in verses 24 to 27. We get to observe his response. And if we ask the question, how does Jesus respond to their desire to see proof from him? The surprising answer, I think completely unexpected, is that he decimates their pride. 
That's the second point of his message. The first thing he does is acknowledge their desire to see proof. And the second thing he does very simply is he decimates their pride. In three quick strokes, he absolutely levels them. He takes away everything. If we ask the question, why do they get so angry? Like angry enough to kill him, to try to murder him? Why do they get so angry? The answer, very simply and understandably, is he completely destroys every shred of pride that they have. In this devastating series of words that Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect physician, speaks to them. We're going to come back around at the very end to why he chooses this strategy and think about why he might have done it this way. At the very end, we're going to do a little bit of work on that question. First, we're just going to notice how he does it, okay? These three quick strokes that he makes at them where he completely levels them. What's he communicating to them? Three things. First of all, this is the first blow to their pride, the first assault. First thing, there's something wrong with you, not me. This is verse 24. That's the first message that they get, okay? Now, those words aren't here, but that's what's being communicated to them. There's something wrong with y'all, not me. We could call this a blow to their community pride. Where do, we, where do we see this? Where do we get this from? Well, it's in this proverb that Jesus applies to their situation. Truly I say to you, this is verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Okay, now think about those words and what they communicate. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. The reason that I'm not going to do signs here like I did at Capernaum has nothing to do with me and my abilities. It has everything to do with you and your ability to accept what I do. Do you see that message? The problem here does not lie with the prophet and his ability. The problem is with the hometown. It's your fault that you're not going to see these things that you want to see. Because a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. Think it, put yourself in their position. Think about that kind of a blow from Jesus, whom you've got these high hopes for. And he's one of you. And he comes in and the message is, the hometown is not going to receive it. Jesus knows that they will not accept him. They will not believe him, even if he does perform signs and wonders. Think about where that puts them relative to Capernaum. Well, people in Capernaum must somehow be more intelligent, more spiritual, better in some way than us because they got to see signs and they accepted it and we're not going to. They're up here and we're somewhere down here. That must have been a huge disappointment, especially because they thought they had an in with Jesus. 
Okay, that's the first stroke that he takes at their pride. There's something wrong with you, not me. Here's the second assault on their pride. This is an evil apostate generation. Okay, that's, that's the message that gets communicated to them through his chosen words. This is an evil apostate generation. Apostate just means that the people have left God. They've turned away. They are unfaithful. That's the second message that gets communicated. As for you generation, you are an evil and apostate generation. We could call this a blow to their spiritual pride. Okay, the first message was a blow to their community pride. This is a blow to their spiritual pride. And this has to do with how he frames his ministry. He frames his ministry in terms of Elijah and Elisha in their ministry. That's the comp that he uses in verses 25 through 27. When he's making a comparison between his ministry and something else, he chooses Elijah and Elisha as the point of comparison for his ministry. Okay, now think about it in terms of real estate. Imagine that you're selling your home. The agent comes and they present you with a list of comps and some pictures, you know, a list of comparable properties to yours, the one that you're selling, so that you can get an idea of what you might list your home for. You may have had comps presented to you before. Well, picture all the comps being terrible. Like your agent shows up and lays out 10 houses in really bad condition, like run down, bad looking, bad location. And the agent is laying it out and basically saying to you, this is what I would compare to your darling baby. The house that you love and have lived in for these 25 years. Yeah, these are the comps. That's what they think of it. But they're just telling the truth. Well, that's what's happening here. By framing his ministry in terms of Elijah and Elisha, he's saying this is a spiritual low point, an evil generation, a generation that has turned from God like the one in which Elijah and Elisha ministered. That was a horrible, horrible time in Israel's history. Kings had forsaken God. Not only had they forsaken God, they had embraced the gods of the nations. There was Baal worship. King Ahab took a a foreign devil-worshipping wife named Jezebel, and they persecuted and killed the prophets of God. That's the comp. Jesus is saying that's our true context. That's, that's the generation. That's our situation right now. Now, he could have framed his ministry in terms of Nehemiah, right? He didn't frame it in terms of Nehemiah. I'm sure they would have loved to hear that if Jesus had used Nehemiah as a comp. Like, I'm returning, I'm coming to do a great work and restore Jerusalem. Wonderful. If he'd have framed it that way, he didn't frame his ministry in terms of like David or Solomon. And this is going to be a glorious restoration and Israel's going to be the center and everyone's going to come and worship God and there's going to be riches and peace. And that's not the framework. 
He didn't even frame it in terms of Judas Maccabeus, who most of us don't know, but 170 years prior to Jesus speaking, had led the glorious revolt against the Greeks and kicked them out and restored temple worship. And the Nazarenes might have expected such a comparison from their Messiah. Surely it's going to be like Nehemiah. It's going to be like David and Solomon. It's going to be like Judas Maccabeus. And instead, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, compares himself to Elijah and Elisha who ministered in a dark, dark time and pretty much alone. God's people were not on mission anymore. Kings didn't represent God. It was the prophets who took God's name to the nations. We're just noticing how framing his ministry in this way, saying that about the times, suggesting that they were likewise part of a a time of unfaithfulness to God, would have been a huge blow to their spiritual pride. And by the way, just notice that by the end of the passage, they will have proved Jesus' very point. Because they too will take the true prophet and persecute him and try to kill him. Just as in the days of Elijah and Elisha. There are the first two assaults on their pride, their community pride, their spiritual pride. And the third thing Jesus communicates, his third point. His third point is that even outsiders to Israel will get to see more than you do. Even outsiders to Israel will see more than you. Okay, so now we have a blow to their community pride. We have a blow to their spiritual pride. And what is this? This is a massive blow to their national pride. To think that the Gentiles are going to get to see more than we get to see. Jesus reminds them that in that evil apostate generation of Elijah and Elisha, there were so many needy people in Israel. There were needy widows, needy lepers. They did not receive help from God. They did not receive his blessing. It was that widow outside of Israel, in Sidon, the land of the Gentiles, that Elijah went to help and provided with food that didn't run out, the flour and the oil, the miraculous provision of food. She got the help. And he reminds them that in the days of Elisha, when there were many lepers in Israel, only Naaman, the hated enemy, the Syrian, was cured. It was the foreigners who saw the mighty works of God instead of God's own people. And the hard truth that Jesus is sharing with the people in his hometown is that in his ministry... Even Gentiles are going to get to see signs and wonders while Nazareth will be left out. Because you know what? Jesus will go to a Gentile land and make a miraculous provision of food like Elijah did. It's going to happen in Mark 8. He's going to go feed 4,000 people in a Gentile region. And Jesus is going to go deliver a Gentile man who was without hope just like Elisha did. It's going to happen in Mark 5 
Even the Gentiles who are experienced those things. And as for Nazareth, they will get nothing. So it's one thing to assert that the people of Capernaum are going to get to see some things that they would love to see. At least those people are also Jewish. Now he's asserting that even the Gentiles, who they consider to be filthy dogs and their worst enemies, they're going to get to see what Nazareth won't get to see. And so now he's decimated their national pride as God's favored people, the people who have a monopoly on his blessing. And remember, supposedly, this is their Messiah speaking. And so I think we have a better idea now of why they responded the way that they did. Their community pride, their spiritual pride, and their national pride completely decimated by Jesus. Okay, let's talk about their response. This is verses 28 to 30. We saw the two points of Jesus' message. He acknowledged their desire to see proof. He completely decimates their pride. And now we see their response here at the end, verses 28 to 30. And this is what we want to say in summary about the response. He's really just left them with two options. They have two options before them. Option A. Option A is, I must die. I must die to self. They are going to need to swallow incredibly hard to receive that blow from Jesus. To receive that decimating word regarding who they are. They're going to have to humble themselves to an almost unimaginable degree. To be able in that moment to say, okay, we obviously are really in need of some repentance here. Can you imagine the kind of humility it would have required of them to do that? To do that, to just stop and say, okay, we've obviously got a big problem. I'm sure it would have felt like a death to them. It would have felt like everything inside them that they've held dear has suddenly died. Everything that they took pride in has been accounted as nothing. To accept the word of Jesus in that moment, to agree with what he was saying, probably would have felt like a kind of death. And that is exactly what it may feel like for you to turn from what you have always thought was true of yourself and what you've always taken pride in, to turn from those things and trust Jesus. It may feel like a crucifixion. It may feel like a death. It may be a devastating blow to your intellectual pride. That may be the thing that's kept you from giving your life to Jesus. Maybe you have viewed his followers as people who believe in fairy tales and people who hold these arcane views. Maybe you have viewed his followers as intellectual midgets who have just given their minds over to nonsense 
and unscientific theories. You are very out of touch with the present day. And you may view yourself as having really progressed beyond all those things and reached a higher level of sophistication and knowledge. And for you to change course now after everything that you've said, to turn and actually trust in this Jesus and throw in your lot with the Christians will probably feel like a death. In fact, it may feel worse than a death because you have to live through it and live with the consequences of it. All the comments and the snide remarks from family and friends, teachers and professors, co-workers, everybody. Can you really sit there and accept what Jesus says is true about you, that you are evil and that you need saving and that you can't save yourself? but you have to turn to Jesus to be saved. Are you able to accept that word from him? Up until now, you have refused to go to him because of lack of proof and because of pride. And it's going to require an excruciating humbling of yourself to go to Jesus. And it will feel like that you've died. All we're saying is that that's one option. That was, the, that was an option before the people of Nazareth on that day. They could have died to themselves upon hearing these devastating words. And they could have asked him. Think about what they could have done in that moment. They could have asked him, what must we do, Jesus, Savior? seeing as this is our dreadful condition. They could have done that. They could have sat there and swallowed hard and said, okay, what must we do, Jesus, Savior, seeing as this is our dreadful condition? That's the question that we should all ask of him. That's one possible response to Jesus. I must die. The other, only other response is Jesus must die. And that's the response here in Luke 4. I think it's very likely that at this point in the narrative, they regarded Jesus as a false prophet. Having claimed to be the prophet and the Messiah, and, and then having said these things about him, about them, Like the Messiah is supposed to be pro-Israel. He's supposed to deliver us from the captivity of the Gentiles. This guy is actually seeming to be pro-Gentile. And he's saying bad things about us. Therefore, he must be a false prophet. And the penalty for a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy 13, is death. That's what I think happens here. That the people felt justified And like they were even doing God a favor by dragging him out of the synagogue and trying to throw him off the cliff. That they were trying to put the false prophet to death. Jesus' death was their only other option. They could either accept what he said was true, which would require extreme humility, or they could decide that what he was saying was not true, in which case he must die because he's claimed to be a prophet. 
And what we want to notice is that that's the place that Jesus has all of us. We have the same two options. Before you and before me, before everyone. Any time that the kingdom of God is preached, rightly preached, someone must die. When the kingdom of God is rightly preached, someone must die. It will either be you or it will be Jesus. And we would just call that dying to self. It will either be you dying to yourself and accepting his word as true, or we must reject him and, as it were, kill him. This is what Tim Keller likes to say. Jesus only leaves us with two options, either kill me or crown me. That's it. That was the choice before them. That's the choice before you. And so I put that question to you. Who has died? You or Jesus? It's the question that hangs over us as we, as we end the passage. said we'd, we'd say a quick thing about this one last question, just in summary, and because we're really interested in knowing who Jesus is, why he does what he does, what it means for us, getting into the mind of Christ. This one question, why does he do this? Like, why does he lead them down this road? He initiated the whole thing. He ju- he's the one that jumped in and took the conversation, conversation in this direction. Why does he do this to the people of his hometown? Well, we can't say anything for sure. But what we can do is notice that he gives them the first lesson in discipleship. This is where I want to really address and just speak to those of you who are skeptical about the claims of Jesus. Remember, what they wanted was to see signs from him, okay? Jesus understands that desire of wanting to see signs. But instead of giving them that, he gives them the very first lesson in discipleship. What is the first lesson of discipleship? You have to deny yourself. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. This is the very first lesson in discipleship. And that's where he goes. He goes to deny yourself. That's why he decimates them. We're going to see Jesus do this so many times in Luke. He cuts immediately over to discipleship when we would have expected him to do something else. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When he meets the ones he will call to be his disciples, his word to them is not believe in me. What is his word to them? Follow me. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means that Jesus calls into discipleship and calls people to follow him who don't believe in him yet. I think that's awesome. He doesn't say, believe in me. He says, follow me. He goes right to discipleship. And that's really good news for you if you're skeptical. Because let me just say something about myself. Jesus is so much more patient and gracious than me. 
he is so much more patient and gracious than the typical church because you know what we want to do with you, skeptic? We want to wait until you believe in him. Oh yeah, then come on in and we'll train you and we'll teach you to be a disciple. Believe first, now discipleship. That's not how Jesus is. He takes the skeptics, the ones who don't believe, he gives them the first lesson in discipleship. Come on, follow me. They don't believe in him. He's teaching them about discipleship. He's teaching them the very first lesson about denying themselves. He takes people that just haven't seen anything from him yet or haven't seen enough and says, come on, follow. Is that you? Is that you? You who are skeptical? Jesus' word to you. I know you want to see signs. His word to you is follow me. And guess what? You will see. You will. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful Jesus. I pray for the one who fears to come to him because they have not seen enough in him and they're skeptical. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows we want to see proof. And instead of giving us what we want, he gives us what we need. He teaches us the very first thing we need to know, which is that we have to lay all of our pride in the dust and receive his word and follow. And we confess by faith, those of us who have followed and seen, that he takes his disciples and he opens our eyes. and shows us even greater things than these. We love you. Amen.